Hallelujah. Father, there is no name in heaven and on earth whereby men might be saved. There is no name higher that can compare. There is no hope. There is no renown. There's no one in this universe, Lord Jesus, by spiritual being or by physical man, who could ever stand in the gap for our sins, who could ever reassure us of eternal life, who could ever grant hope in light of the crisis of a fallen world, save one name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, born in time, the fullness of which prophesied of old, fulfilled at the perfect moment. And in Him is grace, salvation, and assurance and pardon of sin because the penalty has been paid for and through His blood we have been atoned. We confess the name of Jesus Christ is the ground and assurance and our absolute hope, the foundation upon which the church is built, the buttress and truth by which she stands, the foundation whereby a life is ordered, the only hope for reform in a society, the only ground of our salvation and the only way that revival can truly come is when that name is exalted upon the praises of your people and in the hearts of the redeemed and is confessed as a way of salvation from the lips of the lost. To this name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. And we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have joined Lord Jesus in the profession of Christ alone because you have woken us from the death of sin unto the praise of your holiness. I pray this day as we return to the scriptures, the authoritative proclamation, the very word and revelation of you, the Almighty One, that our hearts would be stirred to love and appreciate and be comforted by the words, but also to revere and to exalt and to hold as holy and awesome that which you have forever declared. Lord, I thank you that your scriptures are absolute and that they are completely consistent and that they from the beginning to end hold sufficient words of life for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Would you call the lost to salvation and equip your church, we pray, by the Spirit's use of these means today to the praise of your name and the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What a gracious gift it is to us that God would secure by His providence this time for us to set aside to honor and to exalt Him. And this time, at this moment, as we turn our hearts and our souls and our understanding to the Scriptures, I pray that He would be exalted by a deeper appreciation and a better understanding of His truth proclaimed from His Holy Word. We turn today to Genesis 24, and if you have your Bible with, would you turn there with me today? In anticipation of reading God's Word, we find His Scriptures proclaimed to us today in the second portion of the account of the bride quest for Isaac in Genesis 24, and our verses of primary consideration today will be 29 through 67. The title of this morning's message is A Prosperous Way, and that language comes right from the text itself. Uh, Eliezer, as I've come to know him, we're not sure exactly who it is, but I assume the servant of Abraham was revealed to us in Genesis 15, 1 and 2. Certainly, if not him, someone with whom the entire state of Abraham's wealth and his livelihood could be trusted was sent on a mission. And so this servant goes and he cries out to the God of his master that the Lord would prosper his way. 
Meaning that this endeavor, that this mission would be fruitful. And boy, does the Lord answer his prayer. Spectacular, supernatural, glorious fashion. And supplying undoubtedly by his miraculous hand, the assurance that God himself, the Holy Spirit, has arranged the very marriage of Isaac, the covenant son, with the appointed covenant bride, Rebecca. And so this is the background and the introduction to our text today. We covered it last week. and We're continuing our series today. The aim of this morning's message is to reveal the abiding significance typified in the covenant bride quest. So this is a mission to secure a bride for the covenant son. And so there are parallels and there is, I think, a surprising direct correlation to the calling of the bride of Christ yet even today in what is typified or symbolized here in the calling of Rebecca. With your scriptures open out of reverence for God's word, would you stand with me today as we listen to the authoritative proclamation of God's inerrant truth from Genesis 24, beginning in 29, and hang in there. We have a few verses through 67 today. Here is the word of God. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to the clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me, but he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel before you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you have come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who shall say to me, Drink and I will draw water for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar in her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, 
the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, I'll Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Halai Roy and was dwelling in Negeb, in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Indeed, a prosperous way. It's recorded, documented in detail. And in this detail, what I've tried to communicate even in the reading is that the text contains suspense and anticipation. The suspense and, continue, and anticipation continue to build, in fact, along this sequence of happenings. This, I would say, is an exemplary faith and love story. An example of faith and love is written in this story, and even more than this, and especially so, an example of God's sovereign hand directing the paths of those who trust in Him. Securing a covenant bride for Isaac, the Spirit of God has accompanied Abraham's servant and answered his earnest prayer. In ordering these events, in a striking, in a moving display of providence, Abraham's ambassador, his servant, recognizes the one true God, Yahweh, the God of his master, has, quote, prospered his way. Indeed, Abraham's servant's own faith in this journey has been welcomed by fruitful blessings. And now, in the second portion of Genesis 24, a second journey will commence. And that journey would be Rebecca herself returning with him, the servant, to meet her would-be husband, Isaac. And so we remarked just by the geography that historians approximate at, you know, so many camel miles per hour, which my kids and I learned this week can be 
at a run, a sustained run, 25, that's pretty quick, and at a fast gait, even 40 miles an hour. Well, we figure on average maybe 10 for long journeys. So here they are. For three weeks, presumably, by these measurements, roughly speaking, this caravan retraces its steps back to Canaan. And this caravan, remember who's with them, Abraham's servant and his men, Rebekah and her uh, maidservants and so forth, they are bearing, this caravan is bearing precious cargo indeed. The future lineage of Abraham, the birth of the Messiah, would depend on the success of this journey. And at any moment, just from the outside looking in, from a natural perspective, at any moment in this chapter, how easy it would seem to us that something could go wrong, rendering the bride quest a failed uh, mission. But does it happen? No, not at all. Nevertheless, in spite of the danger, in spite of the odds, God has demonstrated once again in our text today that He orders the affairs of men to bring glory to His name and to advance His redemptive purposes. Now, famous commentator Matthew Henry writes the following of this account, quote, The making up of the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah is told very particularly. We are to notice God's providence in the common events of human life and in them to exercise prudence and other graces. In other words, this story contains some lessons. We covered some of these last week as to the godly character of at least three individuals. That would be Abraham, the servant, and Rebekah herself. So we can look to these as examples of godly diligence and prudence. And then certainly their evidence of faith can be encouraging to us. But I propose we can add a few things perhaps to Matthew Henry's commentary. Let's include maybe the following sentence, and I'll seek to justify this with my message today. Furthermore, quote, furthermore, in the sequence of events unfolding, we behold a striking parallel to the calling of redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ unto His bride, which goes forth yet today. So my contention is this. The sequence of events that we have just read of contains striking parallels to another bride quest. Did you know, I'm sure you, if we put two and two together, it only stands to reason, but did you know that there is a bride quest for a covenant bride? It's a mission to secure a bride for a covenant son going on right now as we speak. And indeed, the proclamation of God's holy word is one of the preeminent means whereby that mission goes forth. Yes, I'm talking about the gospel and I'm talking about the bride of Christ. You and I are like the servant of Abraham, if you're a believer, with a particular calling to announce that the Messiah will receive from the lost who repent and believe in His holy name a bride that will further His redemptive purposes. And so the bride quest goes forth today in the proclamation of the gospel to secure all who would repent and believe, collectively described as the bride of Jesus Christ. And this is prefigured, I submit. This is symbolized. And these parallels and this pattern was anticipated, yea, even prophesied in the text that we read today. And when we see that connection, I trust and I pray that would encourage your souls. The aim of this morning's message, after all, is to reveal the abiding significance of these moments that typify or symbolize or they hold forth a pattern, they prefigure, they foreshadow the covenant bride of Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in this room, that would be you and me. Yes, indeed, in a spiritual sense, we can identify with Rebecca. Here's a heading. 
a gospel-telling sequence of events. If you follow kind of the chain of events that go on here, I'll list five points. I submit that in the calling of the covenant bride, we witness a telling sequence. Indeed, they parallel the gospel. Number one, invitation. There's an opportunity presented. Number two, there's a proclamation. And in that proclamation, there's an explanation offered. Number three, there's consent. There's a willful surrender to the covenant bride calling. Number four, there's a journey that is progress unto the promise. And number five, there's consummation, manifest promise, blessings, and communion secured. Now, if you think about it, invitation, proclamation, consent, journey, and consummation, right there, saint, that is the journey, that is the trajectory of you yourself. Jesus Christ was proclaimed to you, and there was an invitation offered to submit and surrender to him. And if you're a true believer, you repented of your sin, and you made Jesus Christ your Lord, your Messiah, and your bridegroom. And in so doing, this is just a summary of today's message. In so doing, you joined him on a journey of sanctification, increasing towards the goal of becoming more like Christ, being made into his image, learning how to worship and glorify him by increasingly repenting of your sins and being transformed into his image, even as by the Spirit of God. And you and I have a destination, an ultimate hope, a consummation of that marriage promise. And it's symbolized in our last verse, Lord willing, we'll cover today, the marriage supper of the Lamb, wherein there's a celebration of ultimate consummation and reunion in the kingdom of God, where the saints who are called on that journey meet their bride fully and finally in the new heavens and new earth in glory one day at a feast beyond imagination forever and ever enjoying that restored communion that is possible because of our calling as the covenant bride out of sin into relationship with God the Father through our Savior and mediator, Jesus Christ. So let us see how this is pictured in our text today. A gospel-telling sequence of events begins in verse 29 with an invitation. That is, there is an opportunity presented for a message to be spoken. Verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man. He's extremely interested in the, what's going on. He ran to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet, the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. In this opportunity presented Abraham's servant to make his case, we notice a few things. First of all, there are two kinds of hearers. Now, subtly, this is revealed in the text, becomes more clear later. Laban is motivated, it would appear, by different things than Rebekah. Rebekah, a woman of faith, submits and surrenders, gives that willing consent to the calling of the covenant bride. However, however, Laban is also willing to listen. But did you notice this in the text? As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words and so forth, he became particularly interested. Does this speak something of Laban's character? I believe it does. 
We see here a foreshadowing of what would be revealed more clearly later. That is, Laban, in his dealings with Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob, he would prove to be a self-serving opportunist. That's correct, a self-serving opportunist. Laban, not a man of godly character. Later, in fact, you see that he himself would present an obstacle in his sin to Jacob, Isaac and Rebekah's son in the future, to Jacob securing his own covenant bride. You remember the Rachel and Leah incident? And so in spite of Laban, nevertheless, God uses him in his interest. But we find something in the text. When the gospel goes forth, there are different kinds of soil, infertile soil and fertile soil, as Jesus describes. There are different reasons for people to be unfertile. Perhaps you're given to the lust of riches. Perhaps you see in the message of affiliation with the gospel of church or whatever, just an opportunity to benefit yourself. This story tells us, it makes quite clear, even in the events and characters that are featured, that the purpose of redemption is not ultimately about you. And this is not a self-serving endeavor. No, it requires faith, sacrifice, submission to the Lord. And God will not suffer. He knows each one's heart. He will not suffer that a Laban, you know, be included in the covenant if he would remain in his sin of self-serving opportunism. So there's a contrast. Sometimes the gospel is met by a Laban who either gives a show of hearing, but it proves to be unfruitful. And sometimes by God's grace, the gospel heart falls on a heart made fertile by the Holy Spirit and it produces fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold, including, in a moment, exemplified by Rebecca, leaving house and kin behind and following Jesus Christ, even if it means a three-week journey to meet a stranger who would be your husband and the promise that through that union, by these unfathomable means to her on the day when she dropped her water jar into that well, that she would be the covenant mother of the future lineage of the Messiah himself, absolutely blown away. But much like Mary, who would be in the lineage of the heart of Rebekah, she said simply, I will go. The gospel comes forth to your ears this day. Jesus Christ is calling you out of the heron out of the paganism, out of the one-time affiliations of your sin. Oh, lost America, oh, lost person in the sound of this word, of this preaching, will you answer the voice of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ calling his covenant bride from among the pagans, from among the inhabitants of Ur and Haran, so to speak, even in this nation who has rebelled against the one for whom we owe our very existence. Will you hear that voice and say, to the calling of the gospel, I will go. Now notice one other thing in this invitation. Eliezer, well, I've come to call him Eliezer. We don't know for positive that that's who this is. He has a commitment to the priority of his mission. His covenant, the covenant implications of what's going on are so important to him that he refuses to take a bite of food until he has made first things first the priority. He said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. Does this not remind you of Jesus Christ sent from the Father whose primary mission was to call the lost sheep to repentance? Do you remember things that Jesus said along these lines? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Here is a servant of Abraham who in a picture of this kind of gospel faithfulness anticipates what Christ would magnify beyond measure. 
that he would do by first priority the will of him who sent him. And so you see here a picture of how important the covenant that is, the relationship of those who are called out as a bride of Christ is with their would-be groom. And the servant of Abraham understands this. Therefore, he makes, he illustrates the priority of this calling, of this covenant bride quest, by refusing to satisfy himself and his own daily bread needs until he had made the priority of this concern known. Thus, in this opportunity presented, in the faithfulness of this servant, and in the scenario, the ears by God's providence of Laban, Bethuel, Rebekah, and all who were in their company, servants and so forth, we have the gospel about to be preached, so to speak. Secondly, the gospel-telling sequence of events. From this invitation springs a proclamation. An explanation is offered for the purpose of the servant's mission. He said, I am Abraham's servant, verse 34, and the Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. Now, this is a recapitulation that is a repeat of the first half of the chapter. We've already read it once. It's quite lengthy. I won't read the whole thing. But notice a few things. Verse 40, he said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. Now, we notice in our last message that Abraham has reason to believe the angel of the Lord will precede his servant in this matter because Abraham himself has been visited by the angel on multiple occasions. And yes, we find indeed the work of the Lord in the presence of his Holy Spirit intricately weaving the details of these events together in such a way as to accomplish his holy will. And so this is how the events unfold. And in fact, the Lord does prosper, that is, give fruit for the mission of Abraham's servant. He goes further. You shall take a wife, these were his instructions, for my son from my clan and from my father's house. And of course, he says if he is not able to do so, he's free from his oath. And then he says in verse 44 that he said of the prospective woman, the hypothetical, you know, candidate, covenant bride, uh, who will say to me, drink and I will draw water for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has chosen, or excuse me, has appointed for my master's son. So you remember the request? So there's a desperate plea. There was an earnest entreaty, a request of prayer by Abraham's servant, Lord. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking for a needle in a haystack, so to speak. Would you show me a sign that I have found a bride for my master's son by, telling, by showing me the woman who, upon my request for a drink, will offer to water my camels also and let her be the one? The Lord in his mercy, the steadfast love that the servant recognizes is shown time and again to his master, answers this prayer. And now he's recounting this very thing. The servant had said, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. You see, this is the explanation that was offered. And what is the servant testifying to? The sovereign hand of God ordering this sequence of events is identified in the servant's testimony. He makes his appeal. And how does he make his appeal? He points to the hand of God in ordering the affairs of men to call out the bride to join him in the quest to be united with her bridegroom. This is the gospel, principally speaking. And notice in Stephen's sermon, we won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 7, even to the hard heart unbelievers, the message remains the same. What does he point to to make his case and to speak with such authority? 
though just a deacon in a fledgling early church. He points to the sovereign hand of God in the sequence of events all through redemptive history from the calling of this man Abraham all the way up to the present day, even the crucifixion and the resurrection of his Savior Messiah to make the claim that unto you is presented in this opportunity the occasion to repent and believe. Will you notice with spiritual eyes open the hand of the sovereign God who has set the worlds into orbit, who has caused the sun to rise, who gives breath in your lungs, causes the glories of spring to sprout in the leaves and the trees and the greening of the fields, not to mention everything recorded in what we call special revelation, his word of God intervening in inarguable ways in history to demonstrate his sovereign power. Will you not heed these words, repent and turn from your sin? that your spiritual eyes might be open to the calling to be his bride, to come out from your one-time kindred and from your pagan associations and join him in the way. Now, not only Stephen, but Jesus himself proclaimed along these lines. He said that those who were worthy of him would take up their cross and follow him. And where did he bring this message? In out-of-the-way places. He brought his message in Matthew 4, 12 through 22, repent, the kingdom is, of God is at hand. And as we continue to read, he crossed the paths of fishermen and said, two words, commandment, follow me. What did they do? Immediately, they dropped their nets and they followed him. In our story today, the servant has a sense of urgency, which we'll see a little later. And what does Rebecca do? Immediately, she says, I will go. No 10-day waiting period, I will go. This is the explanation that the servant offers. The sovereign hand of God compelling us, or compelling in this case, Rebecca, to, be, uh, to consent, to willfully surrender to the appointment. I want you to notice one other thing in this explanation offered. Notice this phrase. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. The Lord has appointed the woman the Lord has appointed for my master's son. You know, this raises a question in my mind, rephrased slightly, it goes like this. What bride has the Lord appointed for my master's son? You see, this is a gospel question. In Acts chapter 4, or 13, verse 48, the word of God is being preached, and it says, as many as were appointed believed. That is to say that there is a bride of Jesus Christ, his church, appointed for salvation. Who is she? We don't know. But at every occasion, it is our call to give an explanation of this truth, to offer the gospel forth and to call out. What bride has the Lord appointed for my master's son? Who is our master? Jesus, or, uh, uh, God the Father. Who is his son? Jesus Christ. You can see how this, these terms might apply. Who is his bride? The church. So as we go forth again, we can identify with the calling of the servant. We, in our own way, as gospel emissaries, are calling forth. And this question remains in our mind. I wonder what bride the Lord has appointed as a reward for the Son of the Master, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, and His work on Calvary, as rewards for His sufferings. Isn't it good to know, if you are a believer in this room, that you are appointed by God Himself? to be the rewards of Christ's own suffering, that he called you out of your pagan associations, uh, uh, death and hell-deserving sin, unto redemption and faith in him alone. And that came, no doubt, by way of the gospel being illuminated by your heart. And what God had known all along proved to be the case, that you were his appointed bride.
Yet there are more we trust as long as the Lord tarries, appointed for faith in this city, appointed for faith in this nation, in this world. And so let us take this admonition to recognize as such and to go forth and to offer this proclamation. There is hope in Christ alone. Thirdly, consent. There's a willful surrender. Notice in verse 50 what happens. <clears throat> then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. We're so familiar with these stories sometimes that we forget how shocking and responsive like this might be. Imagine yourself, fathers, someone shows up at your door with a message supposedly from the divine that your daughter is appointed for a son whom you've never met, that you must travel three weeks to go to, and he's not going to allow you but two days to even realize or get to know him. And then you're going to pack your daughter up and her servants and trust the Lord, proclaim a blessing, and see her off. And they don't have internet, telephones, communications of really any sophisticated type in that day. It is surprising, the response. And what moved them to respond this way? It was willful surrender to the obvious authority of God's word and God's works. In other words, after they had seen that God had ordered these circumstances, after they had heard the authority of that proclaimed word, they had only one response, and that was to bow before this very proclamation. A prophetic blessing, or excuse me, Rebecca's family recognized the absolute authority of God's will, God's word, and his purposes. Thus, by these means, they are compelled to consent to the will of God. When you are preaching, when you are sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know it, perhaps you feel like me a lot of times, a bit insecure. How will it be received? I want to encourage you by the example here. When you stand upon not your own authority, not your own ability to speak, not the significance of your experience, or not some helpful trick you learned in Sunday school, when you stand upon the authority of God's word and God's works, those whom God has appointed at his bride will willfully consent and surrender to Jesus Christ. That is all you have to do to be faithful, to say God has spoken in his holy word. And to look at these examples of Abraham's servant, of Abraham's servant, to look at the example of Stephen in the New Testament, look at the example of the apostles. Is this not all that Paul did? He said, I proclaim to you what I received, that Jesus Christ was buried, and on the third day he rose, and I declare that by him will all men be judged. And this authoritative appeal gave him boldness to proclaim this message that rang as foolishness in the ears of the unrepentant pagans in the most important and prominent people and places of the land, the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and even Caesar's own household. And you know what? Those who were appointed for salvation, even among the ruling elite, surrendered because the authority of God's word compelled them to do so. We don't need tricks. We don't need smoke machines. We don't need raucous events. We don't need experiences. We don't need the tricks and the uh, culturally relevant, whatever, machinations of the American version of some quote-unquote means and methods to compel people to believe. If they do believe by reason of those means, they're not really the bride of Christ, or we at least don't have the assurance of as much. But when we go forth and say in as many words, silver and gold have I none, impressive personality, 
don't have it. I don't have a lot of skill in speaking. Nevertheless, what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we can point to the very work of his miracle in that event. Rise up from your sin and be resurrected unto newness of life. Therein is the power. So much of the languishing of the influence and the power of the gospel in our apostate Western context is due to the fact that we are standing on the wrong authority. God will not suffer his glory to be shared with another. Not our best CEO, you know, whatever, modeled attempts to convince a world lost in their transgressions and sin and distracted by a media-saturated culture. God will not allow himself to be syncretized, mixed with, compared with, or used as means and mechanism the idolatrous preferences of a sin and hell-bound culture. God will not allow his glory to be compromised by those things. It's time for us to return to the authority of God's word. This is what the servant did, and that authoritative proclamation compelled the family to do something amazing to release their daughter to be the covenant bride, and so they did. Notice the faith of Rebecca as well. Not only did her family consent, but so did she. Her brother and her mother said, Let this young woman remain with us a little while, at least 10 days. A, little, a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he, the servant, said, Notice, Note this sense of urgency. Do not delay, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Does this remind you of any gospel events? It reminded me of one, and I did a little search on my phone. And sure enough, in Luke 9, uh, 57 through 62, there's two or three people who come to Christ and they're interested in following him. What do they say? But uh, can I go bury my uh, dead first? Or I have a field to plow, but uh, can I meet, join you in progress? And what was Jesus' answer? You know, let the field plow itself, let the dead bury the dead in so many words, nevertheless follow me. Just like he commanded the, uh, and what is this? It's like an idolatry test, is it not? Okay, fishermen, follow me. What did they drop their nets? You know, credit to God's work in their hearts and giving them incredible faith. That meant leaving their vocation, the promise of day-to-day -day livelihood behind in deference to the master. And in likewise, in this instance, there is an urgency and a dropping immediately of the normal, you know, traditional relational aspects of preparation of a bride for marriage. Nope, we're not going to allow you a 10-day kind of see-off bride, whatever, celebration ceremony. Right now, we're leaving. What a test for Rebecca. Would you go? He said to them, Do not delay, since the Lord has prospered my way. They called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, three words, I will go. Rebecca is an incredible, virtuous woman. God had given incredible faith. If you put yourself in her shoes, this is quite the statement. Only three words, very simple. But this is, a, this is virtually a covenant vow affirmation ceremony. It's sort of striking that these words almost mirror a godly marriage that we still might perform or see today, right? Will you uh, commit, promise, till death do you part, to, follow, to uh, abide with this woman and so forth? I do. I will. That is the answer. We see a, uh, we see a precedent for this in the simple affirmation, the commitment, the willful consent. I called forth as a covenant bride, Rebecca herself, I will go. This pertains to marriage, of course, and we see that in the context, but it also pertains to another marriage that we've been speaking of in the context of this message, and that is the union between Christ and his bride. 
When Jesus Christ comes with a sense of urgency and says, drop your idols, will you say, I will go? <clears throat> that is the measure by which he judges whether his disciples are legitimate and we should also, and we should hold the same. Point number four, journey. Again, in the calling of the covenant bride, we witness a gospel-telling sequence of events. First, the invitation. An opportunity is presented. Secondly, a proclamation. The explanation is offered. Thirdly, we just covered that. Consent. There's willful surrender. Fourth, a journey. 60 and 61. And so they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, pay close attention to this blessing, proclamation by Rebecca's family. Quote, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Sound familiar? Verse 61, then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels, you know, at a rate of anywhere from 10 to 40 miles an hour, <clears throat> as we learned today, or as we learned yesterday, my family. And they followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. The journey back to Canaan commences with Rebecca and her retinue in tow. Now go back to uh, Genesis 22, would you? The angel of the Lord has spoken to Abraham for the third time. He called from Abraham, it's listed in the text as a second time, and in fact, it's the third revelation of a sovereign God in the ears of the covenant, uh, of the covenant patriarch. Verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Offspring as many as the grains of sand, the stars in the sky, that will possess the gate of their enemies. Now, this blessing and promise is echoed by Rebecca's family. Moved upon, as I assume, by the Holy Spirit, they cry, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. What does this speak to? Fruitfulness, a generational lineage that would outnumber the wildest imagination, but also dominion, authority. Through this line would become the monarch, the king, the king of kings, that would rule and reign on the throne of David and of the tribe of Judah, and of his kingdom, and of the advance of his will and purposes in history, there would be no end. Now, it is insightful that this prophetic promise is given as probably the most important thing that Rebecca packed on her journey. What could she rely on on those windy days where sand is in the eyes and you're on week number two and you have nothing, uh, you, have no, you have no earthly idea what to expect when that man walks to you in the distance after 21 some days of travel. The number one thing you would rely on, oh, not your trusty camel, not your satchel of water, not the guide in front of you, you know, seven camels in the distance, not the journey and the experience of those who are with you, not the community and the attendance of, and you know, the ear of your maidservants, the most trusted possession to give you assurance in that journey, is the promise of God spoken by your family that you are a bride called forth for the miraculous and glorious reunion or reunion with the covenant son. And through that, God would accomplish his will and purposes in ways that are beyond your imagination. And the multitude of lineage 
would have influence even beyond your days, on into the future, yea, into eternity, because by this very union would be established and secured the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. So this is the prophetic blessing that accompanies them on the way. Compare it, if you have time, in your study this week to Luke 1, 32 through 33. The angel of the Lord, Gabriel, goes to call another covenant mother, covenant bride, Mary, and says, to you will be born a son, and he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, once again, supernatural birth circumstances. And he said that he will be great. He will be great, greater than Abraham. He will have the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you're Mary, much like Rebecca, on a journey. You're betrothed to a man, not married to him yet. You're enduring, no doubt, the scorn and the marginalization, the rejection, mockery perhaps of your neighbors because of this really interesting set of events. And this is difficult. This is a trial. This is a journey. And what do you rely on? The promise by the angel, appointed messenger, bringing to you the assurance that by your obedience to this call, as a covenant bride, that the fruit of this union, that is the Holy Spirit conceiving in the womb of Mary, would be an incredible blessing that would supersede her, that would transcend her experience, yea, indeed, to bring the Messiah himself into this world, to rule and reign forever. Do we have any promises that attend our way? If Jesus Christ himself tells us, his disciples, that he will be with us to the end of the age, that is the most important promise that he packs on our journey of faithfulness, even when America is confused to the point of mental illness and doesn't know a, whatever, a pathogen from a hole in the ground and gives us confusing directives and everybody is worshiping at idols and deferring to authorities that are self-appointed fools. In a day like ours where discouragement reigns and where people feel like the end draws nigh, what is the most important thing that God has packed along with us in our journey. I am with you to the end of the age. So go and call forth the bride. Who knows who might be appointed to be the bride of Jesus Christ as we bring the light of the gospel, yea, even to our own dark culture. Amen? In closing this morning, let me bring up point number five. This account is just incredible. It's the perfect love story, faith story. It's just a model of the gospel, and it's beautiful in its own way. And point number five makes this point ever more so. Brings us to a conclusion with the consummation of the marriage. And here we have the manifest promise, blessing, and communion, all all the promises received as far as this marriage is concerned. So, in the calling of the covenant bride, we witness the following. It's a gospel-telling sequence of events. Just to review, there's an invitation where that opportunity is presented. There's a proclamation. The explanation is offered. There's a consent, this willful surrender of Rebecca's family and herself. There's this journey, which is progress unto promise. And then comes these moments, 62 through 67. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then... Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. 
So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We see, first of all, we notice that in this consummation of our story and this relationship, this calling of the covenant bride and then the union with the husband-to-be, in these moments, it's a manifestation of promise, blessings, and communion that's realized with respect to this relationship. And it's pictured so beautifully, is it not, in these ways, verses 63 and 64? He lifted up his eyes. And likewise, Rebecca lifted up her eyes. Kids, do you remember this language that we have pointed out throughout Genesis, lifting up the eyes? You guys remember? Uh, name someone else who lifted up his eyes. Who lifted up his eyes and what did he look at? You guys remember in the course of Genesis so far? Who's someone else that lifted up their eyes? Young people, you remember? I'll give you one example. Abraham was called by God himself to lift up his eyes and to look to the promised land. But do you guys remember where Lot lifted up his eyes? Lot lifted up his eyes to where? Cities of the plains, right? Jordan Valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, and then there's other times where Abraham was called to lift up his eyes as God calls his attention to something. So what is in view with this language? It's beautiful, it's poetic, and it's powerful. To lift up the eyes is to draw one's attention to the object of hope and faith in cases. You know, quite simply, it can be just to draw your attention to something, but I suggest, I submit it's more. When Abraham lifted up his eyes to the promised land, it was a call to attention to behold the promises of God. When Lot lifted up his eyes to the worldly promises, it represented that the orientation of his soul was idolatrous, and he had something to repent of. He was looking to the promise of Sodom and Gomorrah, fertile fields, rather than the covenant assurances of the God of his uncle. And here, in this case, God directs attention, if you will, to lifting up the eyes to the covenant realized and promise. So is this love at first sight? I submit yes, but it is much more. Now, the romantic in us, we read this, we're like, love at first sight, this incredible love story. I believe that it probably was, but I think it's more. To lift up the eyes, the object of God's purposes is to direct one's attention, to ground one's soul, that in the bride God has prepared for me, Isaac himself realizes that the promises of God's covenant are being fulfilled right before my eyes and in my experience. Likewise, when Rebecca, after this long journey, no doubt, wrestling at times along the way, it's hard to imagine she didn't, when she lifts up her eyes to this strapping young 40-year-old and she sees Isaac, she realizes that the covenant, fulfillment, promises, and union that God has ordained are now hers to behold and, and to secure. And, they, and through Christ, uh, through the Holy Spirit, are secured for her. So he lifted up his eyes and so did she. This is a touching, there's a touching and romantic element of love at first sight we might discern. But this language follows a theme, thematic theme and device. It's really a pattern throughout all of Genesis, representing directing one's attention or uh, one's soul, orienting one's soul to the covenant promises of God as opposed to the worldly sinful alternatives. Now, we have young people in this church that are getting older, and it is such a temptation to lift up one's eyes to the promise of a marriage partner. And I remember being in those shoes for sure. But note that in the Word of God, to draw one's affections and attention, to orient one's soul, we should be first and foremost priority our relationship with the Lord. Then and only then may we lift up our eyes in fruitful ways to those relationships that are established on that foundation. Yes, indeed, even the promise 
of a glorious reunion and a blessed and fruitful marriage that God would prosper in the way as we pursue a relationship with a potential bride, potential husband in the future. Follow the example, young people or singles, in the hearing of my voice, of Rebecca and Isaac, and look first to Christ and allow the Holy Spirit, as it were, to arrange your marriage, if you will. And as you do so, there will be, you will prosper in the way I trust, even as we see the example here. Now the covenant bride quest has come to a close. The mission of Abraham's servant has been successful. And at the moment with the chapter of 20, you know, chapter 24 wraps up, there's the consummation of the very marriage itself, picturing the manifest promise, blessings, and communion now secured in the experience, the literal marriage, of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. But let us close turning to a marriage yet future, in some sense, in Revelation 19. Would you turn there with me? So what does the experience of Isaac and Rebekah symbolize even for us? Well, as we've said, the word of the Lord comes forth when opportunity is provided to call forth his bride. Who, is, who are the ones whom the Lord has appointed for his master's son? And what do they have to look forward to? They are the ones who by the Spirit's work hear the voice of the Good Shepherd because they are his sheep. They repent and believe and join the journey of following Christ, dropping their nets, and making Him their priority, even though that takes a step of faith, and even though, like Abraham, they're journeying unto a place not fully revealed yet. But as they go, they have promises and assurances along the way. And where are they heading? Revelation 19 answers in the following ways, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. So you see, there is a marriage, yet future, for those who are called as the bride of Christ from their familiar trappings and surroundings unto a journey of faith, the Christian life, if you will, the calling of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And on that journey, there is a glorious consummation we ourselves look forward to, where the promise and the blessing and the communion of that union will one day be consummate in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What Isaac and Rebekah's marriage and really all godly marriages symbolize is this ultimate event. And it pictures so many incredible things. We were estranged, though we had this privileged reality of fellowship and glorious partaking in the favor of the Lord in the garden. There, became, there was a fall. Our first parents broke covenant with the Lord, Adam and Eve. And as a result, sin entered the experience of all humanity. But there was a cry... Nevertheless, Genesis 3.15, that there would, be come, there would come the seed of a woman one day, yes indeed, in the lineage of Christ, the seed not just of Mary, but also of Isaac and Rebekah and all who would follow in that lineage who would crush the serpent's head. And the call of the gospel is to lift up your eyes, lift up the orientation of your soul to your bridegroom. Perhaps you are the bride called out to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. 
And if you are, there's prophetic promises along the way. And among them, that one day that relationship will be consummate, fully realized in all its manifest glory, communion, and blessing at a great marriage supper, so to speak, where we enjoy perfect, restored fellowship through Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, as the bride of Christ, in feasting and covenant meal with the King of kings, the Lord of lords, almighty forever and without end. And this is how we see the gospel proclaimed to us, even in the sequence of events of Isaac and Rebekah. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your holy word that speaks from page one to the final of the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ revealed in so many powerful, profound, and beautiful ways. I pray, Lord, that the message of the gospel would go forth to the lost if there are any hearing of the proclamation of truth this day and cause them to turn, repent, and to believe, to lift up their eyes to Jesus Christ, place their hope and faith in Him. For those, Lord Jesus, who are the called out ones and are on that journey to meet our bridegroom one day, I pray that the promises that we have reassured ourselves of from the proclamation of your scripture today would be our most trusted asset and be at the ready on the way. So that assurance of union and reunion with you and that glorious promise of the power, the beauty of the relationship with Jesus Christ and the fact that there is nothing that can stand in the way of that love bond through the covenant that Christ has made, the cost of his own blood with us, that that reassurance would give us endurance between here and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to lift our eyes to you in the hearing of your word. And I pray that it would produce fruit, that you would prosper our way this week as we seek to apply your scriptures. May they equip us for the proclamation of truth beyond these walls to the praise of the great name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.